and welcome to my podcast. I'm Connie. I'm a certified nutritionist and personal trainer, and I live on a small hobby farm. I have a huge passion for bodybuilding, but I don't fall into the typical bodybuilding mold. The naysayers, they can have their bro science. Yep, I said it. I'm a natural health and nutrition nerd. Some would call me a granola, but that couldn't be further from the wrong word. I stay away from the typical processed, standard American diet, and I don't eat granola. I created this podcast to share my health journey and the many things I've learned in my quest to find what it takes to live a mindful, happy, balanced life for all humans, not just athletes. I hope to help you discover your inner nerd and help you make some hefty deposits into your knowledge bank account that can help you crack your health code. It was really a long journey, truly. I mean, I started being a vegetarian when I was young, not as young as you maybe. <laughs> I was like 18 or 19. I did that for eight years and then I did veganism for eight years. And then I had this first really big insight at the end of that it was like, ooh, wheat's bothering me. The legumes are bothering me. How can I be vegan if I can't eat grains and wheat and beans? That's just not gonna work. I was living on tofu and <laughs> I was like, this is gonna work. So I figured that much out. I was like, wait a minute, you have a degree from Cornell and you couldn't tell that you shouldn't be eating all this whole wheat bread and all this tofu and stuff you're eating. It's all right, all right. So, okay, I'll change that. I'll eat a little turkey. Still afraid of fat, definitely afraid of fat and salt. That was another thing. My adrenal glands had burned out on the low salt diet. Low fat, vegan, low salt diet will kill you. And I was really not doing well. No adrenal glands, no energy, no oomph, and I really have been struggling with that fatigue ever since those vegan years. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode. You might have something you've never heard of, oxalate poisoning. Ironically, it could be your healthy diet that is making you sick. In fact, most doctors are unaware of this problem and are unable to help you discover and manage it. Today, I have the pleasure of having Sally K. Norton on the podcast. She is a Cornell University educated nutritionist, a dietary consultant, and a lifestyle coach that works with people struggling with unexplained joint pain, muscle pain, inflammation, fatigue, and brain function problems. She has a unique expertise in the link between dietary oxalates and a mysterious health problem. If you eat nuts, potatoes, sweet potatoes, spinach, Swiss chard, beets, chocolate, spicy foods, or tea, you may be at risk for pain caused by oxalate toxicity. Today, she is here to educate us about oxalates. Grab a pen and paper, because this is a good one. Here is Sally Norton. Sally, welcome, welcome. I'm so excited to have you on the show today to talk about oxalates. Thank you. It's great to meet you. So My favorite subject. <laughs> yes. And I'm excited because this is kind of starting to become a little bit of a buzzword. And a lot of people don't understand that there's a lot of things in the plant foods that they're eating that are actually detrimental to their health, can cause inflammation, all sorts of other things. And here we have people that are throwing mounds of spinach in their omelets and all sorts of peppers and everything you name. And there actually can be some ramifications of that, especially, you know, if you're trying to get healthy. So today we're going to talk all about that. And I'm super excited. Me too. 
So before we jump in too deep, I'm hoping you can give my listeners a little bit of information about who you are, what you do, and what got you into this. Okay, well, I'm Sally. I've been a kind of health geek since I was about four or five years old (laughs) and decided I wanted to be in the health promotion field by recognizing in seventh grade that possibly what you eat has a big deal to do with how healthy you are, whether you get cancer or heart disease or are energetic and productive or otherwise on a couch and kind of pointless person, like food matters to that. I thought, well, how cool. If, if we could figure that out and teach people how to be healthy, wouldn't everyone choose health over disease? So I've been interested in figuring out how to be healthy and live healthy forever and have been trying to do that forever. And I have not succeeded at that. <laughs> I basically kept having health problems since I was about a teenager, about 12. I started having back pains and issues and I had to drop out of college. I went to Cornell University for a nutrition degree and then went on and got my master's in public health. It's all part of being in health promotion and trying to do population-based health and uh, wellness work. And I'm like this person who's a nutritionist and a health expert who can't get healthy. And it turned out it was the healthy foods that were doing me in. I'm like, well, I guess it's the last place you look. <laughs> I find that ironic because when I was a kid, my mom was trying to make us be healthy. And so we were vegetarian. And all oh. I can think of is all of the like Morningstar Farms things that we ate that were all made up of soy and all of these things that are terribly horrible for your health. And so I look back at that and I'm like, wow what were we doing? That was like healthy. You know, what we're doing is we're going on a lot of misinformation, a lot of misinformation that gets fueled by commercial interests. So when we got really freaked out about fat, the commercial interest stepped in and produced snack wells and then more and more fat-free things. And all the labels started saying, you know, no cholesterol and no this or that. And then, you know, the whole notion that we could live on just vegetables and grains and soy has been around a very long time, but it really took off after the 60s and 70s with this kind of reactionary counterculture. And then this real need to like get get back to something wholesome as, as our culture gets more and more technical and more and more whatever. I, I think there's been a wider appeal for more people. And the fact that, you know, we've got all these 20th century diseases now, fast forward into the next century, that like nobody seems to have a good answer for. So people are looking for alternative answers and parents are feeding their children veggie, veggie sausages, thinking that that's better than the real thing. And, and they're working on misinformation that does have serious ramifications. I really am curious about how your reproductive health has been and your hormonal health. I mean, growing up on soy, at least you're a female and not a boy. I think that would be worse if you were a little boy living on soy foods. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And actually, um, about 18 months ago, I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's disease, which is something I had been clearly struggling with for a long time, but going through t- t- two traditional medical providers who weren't testing the appropriate things in order to find out what was actually going on. So uh, I myself was on a very strict diet about five years ago, and that's when everything started to clear up. I didn't realize I had an underlying autoimmune disease going on. So there were a lot of things that all of a sudden started to make complete sense. And so now through going to a 
functional practitioner, I've been able to ex- like clean it up perfectly. Not, no, well, I shouldn't say perfectly. It's much better. I've been able to, <laughs> to perfect things and streamline them a little bit, but I had to do a lot of learning in the process and unlearning because so many things we're taught are completely untrue. Yeah. And the thyroid thing has a, is a great connection to oxalates because the thyroid gland is the most likely place for oxalates to accumulate outside of the bones in the body. So if you're over 50, which I certainly am far beyond 50, your odds of having oxalate crystals in your thyroid gland are something like 85% of us have oxalate crystals in our thyroid gland, which are irritants to the cells and irritants to the immune system and turns on the immune system and teaches the immune system to start attacking tissues. And oxalate's probably a major promoter of what we think of as autoimmune diseases. And certainly with autoimmune thyroid, oxalate should be the first suspect because it's so common in our diets and our lifestyle. And it's so common as something that's accumulating in thyroid tissues. I too, I had a big chunky, hard neck glandular stuff in here. My, I went to, I didn't even know it, but the doctor found it actually had a physical exam. That was a physical exam once when they actually touched me and said, we need to scan your thyroid gland. <laughs> it's like, really? <laughs> Miss Healthy has yet something else to worry about? And uh, <laughs> this scan, you know, it was not good. And then later on, I figured out that, um, you know, I had to go on thyroid med and they decided it wasn't cancer or anything. But later, when I figured out I had to be on a low oxalate diet, that all calmed down. I don't have swollen thyroid anymore. And I'm on a third of the amount of thyroid medications I need, thanks to the low oxalate diet. That's really good thing that you figured that out. So before we cruise too much with the oxalates, let's tell people a little about what an oxalate actually is. So oxalate and oxalates are usually spoken in the plural because it's a, a mother compound is oxalic acid, which is a small acid that's ubiquitous in nature. Plants make it for mostly they make vitamin C and they convert it into oxalate, oxalic acid, which drops its proton and is a charged particle with a negative or two negative charges, either one or two negative charges with oxalic acid, which makes it a chelator of positively charged metals like calcium. And in nature, we often see it in the form of calcium oxalate, and that can be a molecule, or if a bunch of pairs of molecules get together, it forms a crystal, which becomes a nanocrystal. A nano meaning so, so sub-tiny. It's smaller than a fat molecule in your membranes. It's super invisible, barely a wisp of anything. Nanocrystals get together and form microcrystals, which build up to crystal sizes that you can see in a microscope. So oxalates are oxalic acid, oxalic acid ions, calcium oxalate, magnesium oxalate, potassium oxalate, sodium oxalate, you name it. There's all kinds of metals that can form bonds with oxalic acid and be a type of oxalate. So we often say oxalate. So there's these ions that are chelators of metals. There's these nanocrystals and then there's these microcrystals. Plants use oxalic acid heavily for their survival and for their metabolism for at least five, six, seven different reasons. Uh, in the desert plants, they need oxalic acid to conserve carbon. And they can use it as a form of carbon when it's hot. Now, if you're a desert plant or a place that doesn't have a lot of water, your plant has to do its photorespiration and create glucose and the things it creates through photosynthesis during the hot, sunny daytime. 
But if you open your little breathing holes, if you're a plant with a leaf, underneath the leaf, you have these stoma breathing holes to let in the carbon dioxide that you breathe in order to make energy. But when it's too hot and dry, that just would turn you into toast. So you can't really breathe in the heat and the dry air as a plant during the day when you need to use the sunlight to make energy. So apparently desert plants make store calcium oxalate as a way to store carbon and they kind of use it during the day for energy and then at night they open the stoma and they build back up their calcium oxalate supply. So plants make it. The bark of trees is loaded with oxalic acid. It helps prevent bugs from getting in there. It's also a way of kind of exfoliating off your extra calcium and junk you're getting rid of. Um, Seeds use oxalate so they can store calcium as a pantry for calcium. So later when germination time comes, it's got calcium that it can spin off into from calcium oxalate. So plants use it for all kinds of things. In the leaves, they can use oxalic acid or oxalates, calcium oxalate, and turn it into peroxide and fight off funguses. So it's a really clever thing. Plants can use this one compound because you can store it as calcium oxalate and they store it as calcium oxalate so they can do all these things with it, including just control where calcium goes in their tissues and how to get rid of extra calcium. So it's there in the plant kingdom as a way of plant survival. Plants have ways to build very specific shapes of calcium oxalate crystals. One of their shapes they make is a double-ended toothpick it's called a rapide and they, they're, they're built in bundles. So like quivers of arrows, like hundreds of them in one big bundle. And those are specifically designed just like other crystals they make in that shape. So apparently the plant lays out these amino acids to create this scaffolding upon which to hang the calcium oxalate. Because a lot of protein molecules or certain amino acids have a high affinity to calcium. So by using amino acids, you can build these perfect crystals. They're amazing. The shapes of these things are so cool. Those are deliberately designed to be arrows to shoot out and harm whatever's trying to eat that plant. There, you know, that kind of reminds me when I was a kid, you know, you would walk through the woods and you'd get little little sharp seeds and things stuck in your pants. And I used to always joke that the little people got me, but there is some kind of truth to that. The plants really are not into you. Yeah, <laughs> They have, roses have barbs, pine cones have barbs. There's so much weaponry in plants. If they weren't outfitted with weaponry, how could they have survived all this munching going on from insects and funguses and humans and deer and rabbits? They're all after them. And they're sitting there, they can't run away. So they develop these sometimes not so subtle, like the, the barb on a rose. Uh, and nobody's been able to breed those barbs off the rose bush, right? We still have to see, we still get to notice that plants really aren't into us picking them, eating them, whatever. So you bring up a good point there and my brain's kind of reeling on it because we as humans started eating all these plants and things. But when I look at nature, uh, I will use my horses, for example, we live on a farm, we have horses and chickens and ducks and all that fun stuff. The, they will only eat certain plants in the field. There are a lot of plants out there that look like they'd be perfectly fine, yet the horses don't touch them. They completely steer clear. And that's happened with my goats, sheep, pigs, you name it. They all kind of have this sixth sense of what not to touch. So where are we as humans making this mistake and starting to eat things? 
you know, we got, it's almost like the story from the Bible of eating the apple and getting the curse of knowledge. We got these highfalutin ideas about morality and, and really, I think it started to come from after the large megafauna went extinct. So there was a, a long period of our history, long period of our history, where we were eating what they call megafauna, which are giant animals, which are all extinct now, the giant sloth and the, and the woolly mammoth, right? These things are huge and you can really feed your family on one of those guys, right? And they're nice fatty meats. So we had a very high fat animal-based diet because once you take down a woolly mammoth, no one is going out for like finding the chocolate bars. They don't even think of it. Like they're happy with that. But when we had to adapt after the period of their extinction to hunting smaller animals like elk and antelope, they're much leaner animal. Uh, and I, it probably, I have this theory that humans got the munchies when they started eating lean meat and it ex expanded our technology into how to collect seeds and grow and collect fruits and berries and things and expand that kind of foraging side of the food technologies that we started to develop agriculture. Then we developed settled societies. And now we've stopped our migratory mobile lifestyles where we had basically tents that we dropped when we wanted to follow the herd or go find a different fishing hole and we would just move around and own the earth and freely enjoy nature and be part of it and then we decided well let's use the seeds and we'll just be here and we'll we'll grow stuff and we'll hurt we, we i think we developed herding first you know we started taming animals and bringing them with us for all kinds of roles and then like you can think of the Egyptians of a period of great settlements, a very big culture, very uh, thoughtful culture, very culturally, culturally, you know, like there's a lot of other pieces to making a settled society work. And some of them include the rules about how do you live in one piece of land and not run yourself into the ground ecologically. And we started developing arbit seemingly arbitrary rules about what you can and can't eat based on whatever ecosystem we're in. So you can't eat, say, pigs in the desert because pigs don't eat what grows in the desert. They eat similar things to what we eat because they're monogastric animals. Whereas, you know, in India, you can't eat the cow because you really need the milk more than you need the animal. In order to feed this many people, we need to not eat the cow, we'll just use it for yogurt and cheese. Like, so the, all these rules came along. And so we kept adding rules and then got more and more ideas about what we can and can't eat. So we moved far away from that sort of woolly mammoth hunter to settled Egyptian living on beer and dark bread to the person who's liberating the human mind from tyranny and wanting freedom and talking about these grand ideas about equality that somehow morphed over into righteousness and goodness there's always been a connection there with how we eat and freedom like okay you better better eat more plants and don't eat animals because that's that's not part of this rights of man ideology and then at the same time there was religious ideology especially with the seventh-day Adventists and their thing but we had some real trouble in the 1800s 1700 and 1800s here in the United States with alcoholism for example. So there was a lot of temperance preaching going on. In part, they felt that alcoholism was a, you know, 
unbridled passion for gluttony and consumption and 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 also was connected with oversexuality, which will go send you to hell. Anything sexual could be bad for your spiritual life. So we, they started teaching eating whole grains and wheat and, and not eating animals as part of getting people off alcohol and keeping people from going to hell. And, and that has, that same line of thinking is really where we still are today. It's just now that the story is about the planet, which has its problems. Right. And I can see where that is definitely a big logistic because you can kind of see it in everything, right? You can see it in the form of fat where we were taught fat will give us heart disease. And like you said, everything says low fat on it. Now everybody's afraid of fat. I can't tell you how many clients I've had come to me and they're like, oh yeah, I don't eat any fat. I don't want to get fat if I eat fat. It's like, no, that's not how it works. <laughs> but that's a, that's a commonality among, among so many people is they think that fat's going to make them fat. So I can see where the grains and everything kind of evolved and that could be a big problem. Yeah, and it's really not their fault that everyone's so misinformed about nutrition. It really came from the elite and people who set up the academies, who set up even the Dietetics Association was, was founded by a vegan. <laughs> Mm -hmm. who was a religious vegetarian. Um, and a lot of people in very influential places have strong ideologies that we should avoid eating meat. And that, that philosophy that meat eating is somehow bad and the fat associated with that is bad for us was a, a justification to support a philosophy rather than truly following science. And so we've been, we've been living on this anti-fat message for 40 years. We've, it's been the culture we've been swimming in for a long time. It's mm -hmm. tragic. So back to you. So at what point did you find out that some of these foods you were eating to try to get healthy were actually harming you? It was really a long journey, truly. I mean, I started being a vegetarian when I was young not as young as you maybe <laughs> I was like 18 or 19 and did that for eight years. And then I did veganism for eight years. And then I had this first really big insight at the end of that was like, Ooh, wheat's bothering me. The legumes are bothering me. How can I be vegan if I can't eat grains and wheat and beans? That's just not going to work. I was living on tofu and <laughs> I was like, this isn't going to work. So I figured that much out. I was like, wait a minute, you have a degree from Cornell and you couldn't tell that you shouldn't be eating all this whole wheat bread and all this tofu and stuff you're eating. It's all right. All right. So, okay, I'll change that. I'll eat a little turkey, still afraid of fat, deathly afraid of fat and salt. That was another thing. My adrenal glands had burned out on the low salt diet, low fat, vegan, low salt diet will kill you. And I was really not doing well. No adrenal glands, no energy, no oomph. And I really have been struggling with that fatigue ever since those vegan years. The fatigue got terrible. So that was the first one. But then I didn't like, okay, I added in sweet potatoes to replace all that bread. And they're supposed to be really low allergy. I was so proud of my low allergy diet. And I had the low allergy diet mastered. I wasn't doing eggs and dairy and wasn't doing wheat and beans and soy and corn and any of these high allergy foods. And I was eating sweet potatoes and, you know, and I was still feeling like garbage. In fact, it was after that switch that I got just a tremendous amount of fine wrinkles. And, and I was about 35 maybe. And I was starting to look really bad all of a sudden. And I was like, depleted vegan then adds in a very high oxalate food. Sweet potatoes are a very high oxalate food. 
as are white potatoes and spinach and Swiss chard, which I grew since I was a kid, beets and beet greens, which were very popular where I grew up and used to love to put vinegar on them. And then all the nuts. You know, I was eating walnuts for snacks at lunchtime and brown rice, the brown, the, the bran and even wheat germ are very high in oxalate. So I, I went from a depleting low salt, low fat vegan diet to a sweet potato and chicken and brown rice diet. <laughs> I didn't feel any better, but it didn't occur to me that, well, okay, so I stopped having these things coming out of my face. The soy allergy was causing this like acne-like stuff that would just, I get one, a zit that would sit there for a year. <laughs> I turned it, that was some of my soy allergy and legume allergy expressing itself. And the wheat was giving me kind of brain coma and it's really severe fatigue. And it's hard to say now if that was the oxalate or wheat, but now I'm really allergic to glidian. So I'm quite strict about that. So all that to say is like, I sort of had that insight, like finally seeing that how I feel and how my brain is working was connected to the diet, but I was so convinced it was just these allergies to gluten and, and legumes and soy that I couldn't take it further to see there's something deeper. And so it took many more years for me to, to find out I had an attack of crotch pain, genital pain that was bad. And I'd had issues kind of like that on and off for a long time. In fact, during my heavy sweet Swiss chard years, I had even blood blisters on my vulva. I was like, what's that? The doctor had no idea what that was. <laughs> that was probably my Swiss chard in a high oxalate diet but nobody knows about this stuff. So I kept taking my little woes to various health providers and no one had an answer. Nobody, it doesn't matter how esoteric or, you know, whatever, functional medicine. So I did the vitamin C IVs and all this stuff, which is the worst thing you can do. Actually, vitamin C IV makes you worse when you're overdoing oxalates because the vitamin C turns into oxalate in your body. And people can just poison themselves on too much vitamin C if they're converting it so much of it to oxalate. So it's, you know, I didn't know. And, but luckily there's this wonderful organization called the Volva Pain Foundation who had a little website in 2009 when I had this pain, my husband looked it up because I was like really in distress and he found them and they're teaching this oxalate thing. And I thought, well, oxalates are for kidney stones. What does this have to do with crotch pain. But I bought their stuff, right? I'm desperate. And their, their materials describe a connective tissue disorder that oxalates destroying connective tissue and creates all kinds of arthritis and weak joints and just funky things with your skin isn't so great. And, all this, and I'm like, yeah, that sounds just like me. But it didn't, I, you know, I'm educated. I have a degree in nutrition. I have this public health degree. I, I know my biochemistry. I, I know stuff which makes you really stupid because you can't learn and listen when you know stuff, right? And so I wasn't really getting it. I tried the diet and I didn't, the crotch, crotch pain went away and I didn't really notice because there was more to the story than they were teaching. And what was missing from their story that I discovered later was that oxalates get caught up in your tissues. So when you're eating sweet potatoes every day, you're just in this kind of on boarding mode and it's so much that your kidneys aren't clearing it sufficiently and your body's holding on to it waiting for you to get out of the sweet potato patch and quit doing that and once you stop eating a lot of oxalate the tissues can eventually unload but in the meantime 85 percent of us have 
oxalate crystals in our thyroid gland and probably in our joints, in our tendons, in our bones, and definitely in our kidneys. And for some people, they end up getting kidney stone problems. And that's the one area where if you have a decent doctor, they'll say, oh, well, if you're getting kidney stones, maybe you shouldn't eat spinach. That's as much as it'll go. If they remember, oh, a kidney stone is made of calcium oxalate. You can't make something if you don't give it the ingredients to make it. So if you restrict how much oxalate is coming into your body through your diet, you restrict how much is coming out through your kidneys and you can save yourself a lot of headaches and not get kidney stones. But turns out that's only one manifestation of too much oxalate in your diet. But even that one that we recognize, those of us conventionally educated people, we recognize that kidney stones and oxalate in your diet is a strong connection there. Even there, the clinicians aren't really thinking, oh, kidney stones are made from spinach and potatoes and potato chips and peanut butter. Those are major foods in America that we eat all the time, iced tea, tea. These are all high oxalate foods. You know, we've mentioned some of the other ones, but nuts, which are now, now approved. Now that we're over the low fat thing, the dietitians are over low fat. Now nuts are okay again. Nuts were bad for a while because boy, they're full of fat. And now they're okay. And the keto people like them and the paleo people like them and the whoever is that, oh, the gluten-free, right? Because now everyone's gluten intolerant and needs nut bread or keto bread or nuts instead of wheat and grains because they're not paleo. So we're really going heavy on nuts and seeds. And, and let me tell you, nuts and seeds are the babies of those trees and plants. The trees did not make the nuts for you to eat. They made them so we could make a new tree. <laughs> and so they're not designed to be digestible. They're not. Like they're deliberately designed to have you help them spread the seed but not to have you destroy the future of the tree by eating all their seeds. So, you know, nature didn't say, oh, I'm making this nuts because humans need keto bread. No, 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 that's not how it's working. But that's not apparent to us either because, you know, we have dominion on the planet. We decide what we want to eat. And we, today's, what's today's health food is what we're meant to eat. <laughs> so, you know, it's really hard for us to get perspective on, you know, does it make sense to be living on almonds? Really? Is that a good decision? We're not questioning these ideas enough and, and no one is. And so a lot of us are getting in trouble. So the, the bottom line is what we think of healthy right now, the nuts and seeds, the spinach, the Swiss chard, the beets, that turns out like pomegranate and blackberries are also bad news, you know, clementines, all kinds of stuff. Kiwis, bad news from Oxley standpoint, that healthy food, Turmeric is another one. Healthy food, it's gonna save the day. They're all high in oxalate and it has the potential to literally poison you. It's a slow, subtle poisoning. Your body is trying to not complain too much and it's holding on and hiding it and you know, letting you live your life and letting you poison it slowly. And it can get hit, you can hit a very serious place where now your body is loaded, your immune system is permanently on, you have all these reactions, you have all these um, intolerances of food, you have your, your swollen thyroid gland, you have your guts not working well, you start getting achy, you start getting arthritic or carpal tunnel or neck pain, you start getting tooth pain or you start getting eye issues or sinus problems. All of this can be coming from this loading up with this toxic chelating 
oxalate that is messing with your immune system, sh shredding your connective tissues, interrupting your mitochondrial function, preventing you from healing. So <laughs> one might ask then, Sally, because you know where I'm going to head with this next, what can we eat? What is acceptable in the amount of fruits and vegetables? Is it kind of an individual-based thing? Or is there a recommendation you have for people for the amount of plant-based food that they are consuming? That's very individual how much plants you can tolerate. And I think really the body's amazing that it tolerates so many plants and that we're eating plants at most every meal. And even though so many other compounds in addition to oxalate, we have lectins and phytates and saponins and glycoacaloids and harsh, uh, both soluble and insoluble fibers, all of that really not designed for that. We, we really, we really did grow up as a species on a very meat heavy diet, principally meat, certainly winters of no plant eating. And so at least we'd get a break and the gut would heal, the oxalates would clear in the winter. So it depends on your state of health. If you've got leaky gut, inflammation or obesity, you're absorbing way too much oxalate because any kind of permeable gut or gut inflammation is gonna make you a hyper absorber of oxalate. So you really have to cool your jets. If you've got any uh, problems with your kidneys whatsoever, you're not gonna be excreting oxalates very well. If you've had a lot of history of antibiotic use, NSAID use like ibuprofen and medications like that, those are shredding both your intestinal tract and your kidneys and it makes you more vulnerable to toxins, especially oxalate. So it's very individual. I do know some people who've never been sick in their lives, who've never been on antibiotics, who are tolerating a pretty high oxalate diet, but they're also struggling with being skinny and looking old early. So even though they're, they, they have enough energy and their brain is working and they can do their lives and it's not really interfering their lives, they, they're not happy that they can't build muscle and they they look 10 or 12 years or 15 years older than they really are. That's the wear and tear on the connective tissue. You're not, your cells are struggling. So it's individual. And if you're really, really sick and you think oxalates are related because you have a history of a lot of potatoes, peanuts, Swiss chard, sweet potatoes, celery, you know, celery is another high one, spinach. If you've eaten a heavy plant diet that includes these high oxalate plants, then you need to be careful because you may have been living in an area of, of you know, a level of oxalate consumption that I call the danger zone, that literally you're skirting on the edge of some kind of metabolic breakdown. And if you go past the danger zone, you go into the death zone where you literally, literally can kill yourself on eating oxalates. So you want to get out of the danger zone and get off those really high oxalate foods, starting with like Swiss chard. Who really needs Swiss chard? You can live without it. I'm living proof you can live that <laughs> and make yourself feel 30 years younger when you stop doing it. So if you really want to feel better, the easiest way in life to feel better is quit with the almonds, the peanuts, the peanut butter, the potatoes, the potato chips, the sweet potatoes, the spinach, the Swiss chard, beets. Like those are some of the high ones that we tend to use too much of. So getting off of those high ones, you have lots of choices and you can stay in this kind of more what's really called the trigger zone where you're eating enough in a certain meal where you're still overwhelming the kidneys momentarily and triggering new deposits in the body. So you're still sequestering oxalate on the trigger zone, but you're not doing it at a level where you're going to be feeling really sick right after your dinner or having trouble falling asleep at night or having 
belching or bloating or gut pain or shoulder pain or whatever you're having, you may have less of that if you get out of the danger zone. But we want to get down to a level where you're eating enough oxalate where you're not, you're not telling your body you're over it completely. If you go all the way to low oxalate foods and go all the way, say there's a carnivore diet where people eat just meat, which is pretty much a zero oxalate diet because the plants are really the primary place where the oxalates are. The, the traces of oxalate that might be in a little bit of milk or liver somewhere are so tiny, they don't count. So we consider that a zero oxalate diet. You're not gonna absorb those oxalates likely. That is maybe too low, too fast for people. So some people who jump all the way down to zero oxalate diet without even knowing about oxalate sometimes have a very bad reaction to that diet because their body is suddenly ready and suddenly getting a moment where it can unload the oxalate from your thyroid gland and your tendons and your joint spaces and your bones and your kidneys. Usually it's starting, I think, with the kidneys. And what that is doing is breaking out deposits that the body has carefully wrapped away and kept quiet. And now it's going in there with jackhammers from the immune system, creating inflammation in order to break those up and then move them back out in these nanocrystals and ion forms. The ions and the nanocrystals are what's toxic to cells. So the bigger crystal deposits that were wrapped away and insulated from tissues are now being exposed, broken down, and have to move around in your vascular system which is inflammatory, which brings up more symptoms. And so when you start clearing out the old oxalate, you could be high in oxalate in your blood and in your kidneys as high or worse than when you were eating it because you've turned around. You basically, sometimes I think of it as crossing a huge street. Okay, so there's one of these really busy streets that has an island in the middle. So you've got a couple lanes of traffic going in one direction that's the oxalate coming into your body from your diet. And then if you cross that street and stop, stop bringing in oxalate into your body, you're, you could land in this space before you go the other side. Now, if you cross both sides of the street, the other traffic direction is oxalate leaving the body. In both directions, coming in and leaving the body, the traffic is heavy heavy in your vascular system, heavy in your kidneys. If you go too fast, you might get hit by that traffic leaving the body and feel flattened, right? Absolutely. <laughs> so there is this little place that a lot of people accidentally land, that little pedestrian refuge strip in the middle of the big road where you're not really stimulating heavy deaccumulation from the tissues. And that's the more finesse side where people really need to understand this well, learn about the data, come to some of my meetings. I have online group meetings, uh, you know, learn from my website and so on. So to get a sense of, well, am I feeling bad because oxalates are coming out or not? Because this, there's this whole kind of chronic oxalate illness that can occur for years after you get off of, you stop eating the oxalates. So the lesson from this is if you don't eat them in the first place, you don't have to cross the other side of the street. <laughs> like, like stay away from the whole street of the high oxalate foods and your whole life is probably gonna work out a little better than it did for me. I mean, I had to drop out of college. I had to leave my job. I wasn't sleeping. I couldn't read the mail. I was completely disabled from poisoning myself with Swiss chard and sweet potatoes. 
Wow, Sally. So there were so many things you just said there that in the big picture of things, I just kept adding things to my list here because I was like, whoa, I'm not even going to remember all these things I have to say to you about this. But um, first of all, is there any kind of blood test somebody can take to know how many oxalates are you know, running around in their system? Or is there some form of testing you can do to know this? Or is it just something you have to kind of go off of by how you feel? Yeah, people really wish there were a test and there isn't really a reliable test for a lot of very good reasons. And the most reliable test we know of is still not that reliable. And that's a bone biopsy, taking a chip of bone out of your hip. Sounds and like a good time. <laughs> they only do that if you're really sick and they really think they're going to lose the patient. You know, it's not something that's done rightfully so because that level of invasion is not necessary that's a very risky thing to do who wants to chop up your poor beleaguered bones because oxalate of course is making your bones weak and sick because it's causing uh, calcium deficiency magnesium deficiency probably potassium deficiencies all kinds of mineral mismanagement and mineral deficiencies as well as b vitamin deficiencies are related to this problem um, so there isn't a good test and one of the reasons is because the body has secret ways of deciding when oxalate is gonna leave through the urine and is doing this on circadian patterns when conditions are right. And so the what's coming out in the urine is reflecting some a bunch of metabolic decisions by cells, by regulatory, you know, pituitary glands, who knows what's all in, we really don't know because this hasn't been studied properly. Um, but we do know that if you were going to just gauge, say, what's your average amount of oxalate in your urine, it would require nine urine tests to do that. That's quite a lot. I don't know many. That's like a thousand dollars. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Even from a from a time standpoint and everything else, that seems like a lot. So basically, what you're saying is is the best thing to do is just reduce slowly the amount of oxalates that you are consuming and see how you feel based on your own biofeedback. Yeah, and that's hard to do. I, I didn't understand it well enough when I did it in 2009. I was like, well gosh, when I eat the sweet potatoes, it doesn't make me feel worse. So in fact, because when I went back and started eating sweet potatoes a little bit here and there, it makes you feel better because it stops that clearing process. Once you start eating them again, it stops the clearing process can make you feel just as sick as you felt when you were eating them. Like I said, it's traffic. It's all oxalate traffic, whether it's coming or going. And, and, and accidentally being in that little space, if you step back from a zero oxalate diet and add back in a small portion of sweet potatoes or whatever, then you might feel a little better, actually. That's why, you know, it's sometimes tricky if you don't recognize that there's this, sometimes this beautiful honeymoon that's about five days long. For some people, it's a month or two long. Some people, it's nine months long because I think if your kidneys aren't happy, you're not going to get that signal to clear right away. You first, you got to have better kidneys that can get rid of it. And until your kidneys are getting rid of it, you may kind of feel better initially, but not everybody. Some people, you know, and then once you realize that, oh, really, you know, all this arthritis or bad sleep or, you know, panic attack, all kinds of stuff can happen from oxalate poisoning, whatever your pattern is of problems. If you started to recognize, you know what, I've probably overdone the oxalates and it's probably related to this and that, it can be a little tricky to, to know, um, that the oxalates and even things like, you know, you just don't realize like my husband, I basically gave him carpal tunnel syndrome, feeding him Swiss chard and sweet potatoes. 
And I had no idea that there was any connection with diet and carpal tunnel. No one tells you that. And it, his went away when we changed the diet. We were about to get, he was about to get surgery for that. And then all of a sudden, by the time he got to the surgeon, he said, well, you know what? I think we can wait on this. And then it just got better and better on its own. And, you know, my husband goes, oh yeah, that fifth pillow finally did the trick. Oh man, I conquered that. You know, like he's eight years, he was getting really desperate. He couldn't hold an ax. He was becoming quite useless. Um, and then it suddenly goes away. And it took me a while to go, oh my God, you mean this low oxide diet fixed his carpal tunnel? And then later on I found, oh yeah, this is in the medical literature from 1935. They used to use this diet to fix carpal tunnel syndrome. Like, oh, really? It's, it's pretty, you know, I think we can equate this with a lot of things though, when it comes to nutrition, right? I mean, there's so many people that are so carbohydrate addicted, right? Mm -hmm. They're, they're eating so many carbohydrates that when they back off their carbohydrate consumption and they start to eat less sugar and all of these things in their diet, they all of a sudden start to get headaches and they feel sluggish and they think they can't perform if they're a fitness person. And so what do they do? They bring those carbohydrates back in and they're like, oh yeah, I feel so much better now. But really it's just their body responding to what the norm is. It's not actually necessarily making things better. It's just that particular moment. Which is just to say that sometimes going on symptoms can be confusing too, but it is really, we have to understand this illness enough. You have to educate yourself enough to start to get another sense for what's going on. And this is a little, this is a tricky one to do. So it's understandable that people, it's hard to diagnose. It always has been tricky to diagnose. There's nobody out there who's going to confirm it for you with a test and make you feel confident about it. I think fundamentally, if you have the philosophy that you shouldn't poison yourself, then oxalate's a good place to start because of all the poisons we're eating. That's one that can be on every plate you've eaten for years. It's so it's just in these foods that we really adore. Well, and I think you definitely see that with the ketogenic movement. I can't tell you how many people I've spoken with. They're like, oh yeah, I went on a ketogenic diet and then I got kidney stones. And it's like, well, how many nuts were you eating? Like that seems to be the first go-to when somebody makes a dietary change is bringing in a whole bunch of nuts. I know myself, I don't do really well with nuts. I'll have them here and there on occasion, but especially almonds, they are one of the biggest offenders for me as far as inflammation goes. I couldn't agree more. I think almonds are probably the most toxic food out there. They're just full of so many things that wreck your digestion and full of oxalate and phytates and Oh, they're just loaded with horrible stuff. You know, they're either, you know, and they're very prone to mold because of the way they're harvested and handled. So they have to either be radiated or pasteurized or whatever early in the game to limit the amount of aflatoxin on them. You know, that's in addition to the cyanide and the oxalate. I mean, and they're just not designed to be human food. It's not a great staple. Mm -hmm. I know the other day I was getting a little wild and wild for me isn't real wild, but I was like, oh, I think I'll have a couple of these um, dark chocolate covered almonds, you know? So what did I do? I probably only ate about a handful of them and I felt absolutely horrible within probably 15 or 20 minutes. And I know the next day when I woke up, I had these big, huge bags under my eyes and I was like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? They were like, they were a good brand, organic, just, there was no added like sweetener. They were sweetened with stevia. Like they were what people would quote unquote call healthy, right? 
they were not healthy for me. I had a handful of them and I ha suffered some major ramifications from it. So uh, yeah, I think almonds are a big offender. I think we have a lot of people also that like are in this flax movement. I think that's another one that's super toxic. Uh, and along that train of what you were saying uh, back, back further in our talk about fiber uh, and our guts and our digestion, I think it's quite interesting that doctors and everybody are pushing fiber like crazy. They're like, oh, you need more fiber. And every box you see in the store says more fiber, more fiber. I will tell you what, I thought I was eating healthy. I was eating tons of plant food at one point and I was having plenty of fiber. I couldn't go to the bathroom and I was suffering from severe digestive upset. And I'll tell you when I switched over to a primary, primarily animal-based protein diet, my stomach upset went away. Bingo. And that's what, that was my direction as I was low oxalate for several years. It, it, my body was more and more able to do what your body did and complain. Like your body told you right away, no, it's the chocolate, it's the almonds, it's the, it's the organic aflatoxins it's all those things that aren't going to work for me no thank you and your body goes whoa and, and so that started to be more obvious to me because unfortunately the low oxalate vegetables are mostly the brassica family which is your arugula and broccoli and cauliflower and turnips and, and rutabaga and you, you name it like most of the produce department is the brassica family so it's easy to start eating too many radishes or whatever on a low oxalate diet and it becomes pretty clear that your stomach is not into that. Cooked or not, the rabinose and other things in the brassicas is hard to digest and becomes quite a bear for you to deal with digestively. So the low oxalate diet allowed my body to say, no, too many brassicas. And then I got down to like, you know, I'm doing lemon juice to help dissolve the crystals. I'm doing coconut products and I'm doing meat and butter and butter and meat and more meat and more butter. And like, that was my time. <laughs> and that's healing my gut. Like finally my constipation is not a big thing. My bloating is not a big thing. Like my body taught me that. I love that. Yeah. So Sally, people would probably want to know, and all my listeners would probably love to know what are there vegetables out there that are lower in oxalates that they can enjoy that they're less likely to suffer ramifications from? Well, the low oxalate vegetables are the lettuces, most of the cabbage family, I mean, moderate amounts of zucchini, watercress is another one of those brassica family vegetables. Mushrooms are good, onions, um, let's see, peas aren't too bad, uh, black-eyed peas aren't too bad. Uh, in moderation, uh, garbanzo beans are okay. So there are vegetables to eat, asparagus, and again, in moderation, and this is the thing, moderation, which is odd around a vegetable these days because now it's supposed to be mountains of vegetables, nine servings per meal vegetables, as many vegetables as you can fit in your blender vegetables. That is a wrong-headed idea. No, no, no. The vegetables that you can manage to digest have to be moderate and, and digestible. I mean, just stuffing yourself with vegetable extracts and vegetable fibers is not working. It doesn't work in the long run. So yeah, there are vegetables. There are a few seeds like pumpkin seeds and watermelon seeds, a little bit of sunflower seeds. Coconut is all the coconut products are low. Anything that's an oil that's coming from a seed, not the healthiest oil, I'll grant you, but it doesn't have oxalate. Oxalate stays with the fiber and the water part and is siphoned off when you make an oil. Uh, 
Gala apples are good. Ripe avocados are good. Cranberries, grapes, kumquats, weirdly enough. Mango, papaya is probably okay. Cantaloupe, which is probably the highest source of potassium along with mushrooms. So some of the good sources of potassium are pretty low. Oxalate, um, watermelon, what else? Let's see, coconut. Of course, the animal foods are low. Herbal teas are low, coffee's low, which is a good thing because yes. I probably would have been shot by now. <laughs> <laughs> I was, as I was drinking my coffee, I was thinking, is this low in oxalates? <laughs> <laughs> That's a confusing one again because the data is bad and even coming out of a medical journal articles are full of mistakes and wrongheaded ideas. There's this whole several, two or three articles that claim coffee is high and it's not high. So I wrote a whole blog post about that. So if you like science and science mysteries and science stupidity read my coffee posts on my website yes um, a lot of a lot of herbs are okay but there are you know spices are seeds and several of the spices and herbs are high um, black pepper is high and so you know black pepper by itself can't get you in trouble but in combination with a high oxalate diet it's like one more thing and if you love like black pepper potato chips or something if you have some like, weird thing you do that could really be enough to get you in trouble. If you're eating every day, you're eating black pepper potato chips, that could be enough. So easy thing to switch to white pepper. Like there's some of this is just so painless. It's cool. In fact, you know, this really is the most painless way to start having less pain. I mean, you've, you really don't want tendons that hurt and tennis elbow and arthritis and gout, then this is the thing to do. I Have love it. Butter a steak and be happy. You know, and I tell people that all the time. I'm like, come on, butter and steak. <laughs> That's like the best thing ever. I don't know. I don't know why you would want to eat a cheeseburger. A steak to me is like perfect. <laughs> so yeah. You know, burgers are affordable. You know, anybody can get if, you know, it would be best if all meat were produced on pasture a hundred percent. It would really help us regenerate soil and sequester carbon and do so many great things to society. We need to go to that, I think, as a model for cleaning up what we're doing to our topsoil and our air and our air quality and our carbon in the air and all that, that'd be great. But in the meantime, if, if someone is, doesn't have an income, if you're too sick to work, if you're a student or whatever, go buy the deal at the main grocery store on the three pound log of ground beef and live on that. That is so cheap. It's so much cheaper than going to McDonald's. You could do it. I mean, there's not a financial barrier to eating more meat, but there's a huge emotional barrier for anyone who's had a history of paying attention to their health. They're in their minds, meat is gonna kill them. And so they're so afraid of meat that that would be a radical thing to go buy standard hamburger and have a hamburger and relax. <laughs> mm -hmm. I love that. Well, Sally, if there was one thing that you could leave with my listeners to help them improve their health, what would it be? Well, I'd say, first of all, you know, take a deep breath and just try to free yourself of the mental prison that we're in with some of these rules like low fat. And then please, please don't think that keto bread is the answer in these high oxalate foods. Please look into this for I'm, your own sake. I'm so thankful to, to have you here say that and to hear that from you because uh, you know, we're all looking for an easy way. And I mean, it, 
people think that because something has a trendy label on it, it's going to be the ticket to their health, which any kind of improvement you make, I guess, is great towards better health. But at one point, you kind of have to look at the big picture and where things are actually taking you. So uh, thank you for that. Thanks for a chance to share. Just any, I'm just here because I know there's some fellow humans who aren't feeling good and need a little clue. And so I'm just, just here in case somebody doesn't have, not feeling good, this is something you need to take seriously. So if my listeners want to come find you and learn more about this, how do they get in touch with you or find you? Where are you at? Okay, I'm online with a website that's sallyknorton.com, sallyknorton.com. It's got lots of information. You could spend a week there and there's still more stuff to look at. There's a support tab. You can sign up to be on a group class. There are small group classes at least two a month. And there's uh, free downloads. There's a cookbook there. So if you have no clue on how to cook cabbage or, you know, I've got a lot of brassica recipes. <laughs> And lots of vegetable recipes and how to really properly cook an egg and just, you know, lots of clues. If you need to be on a dairy-free diet or a gluten-free diet or an egg-free diet, this cookbook is for you. It's got low oxalate still with all those food allergies, you can still do it. And um, you can find me on Instagram. I'm SK Norton on Instagram. I'm not posting a lot because I'm working on a book and Random House will be publishing my book probably this time next year or hopefully by summer next, next year. And that'll hopefully help. Um, make this a bigger conversation. Well, Sally, I love what you're doing and I'm so appreciative you took the time to chat with me today. It's been fun. Looking forward to the next time. Thank you, Sally. Well, everyone, that wraps up another episode. That was a great one and I am thankful for Sally joining us today. Please remember if you liked this episode, please subscribe leave me a review. It is ever so helpful in helping me get great guests like Sally on this podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. I look forward to chatting with you next Monday.